Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. When you share your life with someone, you take on the idea of being a caretaker if something goes wrong, but only in the abstract. But when that idea becomes a reality, life changes in so many ways you may never expect. My guest this week is Abby Morgan. Abby is an award-winning playwright and screenwriter whose new book, This Is Not a Pity Memoir, is available now. I came from a theatrical background, <laughs> so we all, we all very theatrical. No, it, um, my mum was an actress, my dad was a director, so I grew up around theatre. You get an Abby Morgan script and you know it's going to be really truthful. When my partner, Jacob, at the time, collapsed with a brain seizure and so ensued a sort of kind of chaotic complete kind of vote for us upturning of our life. person with TBI has emotional challenges. It can um, significantly affect other family members. Hi, I'm Abby Morgan and I'm a screenwriter and I'm sorry not sorry that I put my pain on the page. Abby, I want to get into your new book, This is not a pity memoir. I love the title. But first, tell our listeners a little bit about who you are. So I am a screenwriter. I write film and television in the UK, but also you'll probably know some of my movies. So I've written The Iron Lady with Meryl Streep about Margaret Thatcher. I've written about suffragettes in 1920s London. I've written about 1950s newsrooms in The Hour. And my most recent show is The Split, which is coming to BBC America at the end of the month. I love all of that. And I think that I just started writing screenplays and it's such a, it's almost meditative for me anyway. Like for me, I'll go into, I'll start writing and then all of a sudden I'll realize an hour and a half has gone by and I feel like I was actually in the scene. Maybe that's the actor in me. I think actors make brilliant writers. I think they make sensational writers because I think they understand about subtext. They understand that actually it's what you don't put on the page as much as what you do. And I think most of good screenwriting is stripping back, actually, and trusting in actors. You know, I come from actors. My parents are actors. So I grew up in the industry. So for me, I've always been amazed the way actors can channel and transform. So I try and keep my writing quite lean. That's really smart. And I'm sure that's why actors love to say your words, because there's it's interesting because I'll read scripts and I'll be like, God, did this writer ever just read this out loud or... Imagine an actor having to say this. 
But I think that's the actor in you because you can hear the bumps in the line. I think most actors are brilliant at transforming and channeling quite quickly, whereas a lot of writers aren't. And a lot of writers get their life from TV. So I think there is a truth in that. I always say actors are keepers of character. The actor will say, you know, you killed off my lover in episode six, but in fact, in episode three of the other episode, you said I wasn't in love with them anymore. And so is that relevant? And so I really rely on actors to show the holes in the psychology. Because we live it. We live it. And we get so... I get so protective of these women that I play, like really protective where you're like, you feel like you're defending their honor. But I want to talk about your book. You open the book just before a major health crisis strikes Jacob, but you were already a decade into a life as a caretaker. Tell us about Jacob and about your life before his collapse. You know, in many ways, Jacob was diagnosed 10 years ago with multiple cirrhosis, but he was very high functioning. He's an actor. The week he collapsed, which happened in June 2018, he collapsed with a brain seizure. But actually, up until then, he'd been pretty amazing. We'd lived a very average life. We'd been together for nearly 18 years by then. And we had two teenagers. We live in North London. We're both very involved in our careers. We've got great families. In many ways, we've looked at each other on a daily basis and said, wow, we're lucky. And Jacob was diagnosed with MS. And in fact, the MS we were very lucky with. He was, it was relapsing, remitting. So obviously he had moments with it, but actually on the whole, he was pretty good. So the book opens on uh, the morning of June 2018, where I was having a really normal day. I was about to go out and I was late for a deadline. Every writer, it was a Friday morning. Every writer knows that they promise a script on Friday and it'll never get there by Monday. And so I was doing all my usual routines. And then when I came back, our lives were transformed because I found Jake collapsed on the bathroom floor. And really, that was the moment when I realized life would never be the same again. It's dark and I'm pissed off. I've slept in the spare room again. So... I'm in no mood for a chat. When I go in, I do my usual, is it your head again? Have you taken paracetamol? But not in a nice way, in a way that he and I know will communicate my fatigue and frustration. The spare room is also his office, with an expensive pull-down bed, meant for the occasional guest or my mother, not for a week now. A week, I've slept in the spare room because I snore. I keep him awake with my snoring. Or, to be frank, he keeps me awake with his snoring, louder than mine. Though this is a point of dispute. A continual point of dispute. But for now, he's the one with the headache. I realised it pretty quickly, actually. Something radically had gone wrong. Why do you think you realised it so quickly? It's very weird. I think the adrenalize a moment where life spins on its head. And I think we've all had those moments on a kind of minor level, maybe when you're driving and you see a little drama in the street or you ever grazed against anything painful or violent or a mugging, whatever, you know that you're like catapult somewhere else. And I think for me, when this happened with Jake, it was like I came in and he was lying on the bathroom floor and very quickly he was repetitively talking. He was like, I said, are you OK? And he was like, what, 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 what? And so I realized very quickly that there was a massive malfunction. So ensued, he was blue-lit to hospital, and then it became very apparent within two weeks that something was going majorly wrong with him. And he had developed what is known as anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, which is believed came as a result of a drug he was on for his MS. And unfortunately, that had triggered, and it was, he was on an experimental drug. It was on the last phase of a drugs trial. 
And the belief is now that was the trigger that led to this kind of catastrophic medical crisis. And so as I talk about in the book, it was, you know, as as actors and as a dramatist, as a screenwriter, I see everything through the prism of scenes and plot points and character. And very quickly, I think all of those kind of life-saving skills kicked in. And I found myself watching what was happening to us, to me personally, to Jacob and to us as a family, our tight unit, as in myself and my two teenagers, but also Jacob's family, I started to see it through the prism of a film, really, and through a prism of screenwriting. And in a weird way, I think it kind of saved me. I was just going to say that they, that may have been beneficial. Yeah, I think it was, because if you've done a sort of 360 backflip, to have this sort of ticking metronome, to have these very instinctive skills in place that make you go, note that down, remember that, that's important, that's interesting. Remember what the doctor said, what's happened now? And also Jacob developed anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis is alternatively known as brain on fire. And it's a very, it's a kind of global medical catastrophe that, and then brain inflammation that basically means that psychiatrically and psychotically you unravel. And so it was a very kind of vivid experience of watching Jacob unravel. And I wasn't immune to the drama of it when it was happening. You do pinch yourself. You do kind of go, is this a movie? Is this really happening? Because I think most of life, I treasure and I enjoy normality now. I love life when it doesn't have too much drama in its day. And I think that's what lucky about what we do as actors and as performers and as writers is we get to experience drama, but it's other people's drama. It's other writers' imaginings. It's at the time I was writing for a long running drama. So I was going and writing all of these kind of catastrophes in the lives of all my characters. So for it suddenly to happen to me and to Jacob and to our family, it was disorientating. And so I think I lent into my instinct as a writer and an observer of life. And I slowly started to write it down. And so the book has a very vivid, compulsive, certainly I think the first hundred pages, you're very in it because I was constantly framing it as it was happening. Well, you narrate the event so clearly in the book and everything that comes along with that, the confusion and the panic and the denial that comes, you know, with these emergencies. And I think that's a thing people are unprepared for. They just assume that they'll know exactly what to do and how to do it. Yeah, that's very true. And I think those mechanisms that you talk about, people talk about the surreal, the out of body, I'm living a nightmare. I think what we're talking about is altered states. And in those moments, if you do yoga, you learn, you draw on those skills, learn how to breathe. If there are things that keep your sanity, if you're a swimmer, if you're a runner, then I think those things also become your running partners. They're the things that you use to root yourself when life turns on its head. And what happened to us was, after two weeks, it became apparent that Jacob needed to be placed in an induced coma because his body was seizuring so much that he didn't look like he was going to survive. So then there was silence. Then you have a very controlled form. So you have this velocity when someone collapses, but then you have this period of coma. And what's interesting is it's both, it's got a sedation and a stillness to it, but at the same time, it's incredibly active. But this time you're not doing anything. You just have to sit and observe. When Jake was awake, we were talking to him. We were trying to negotiate. We were trying to make sense of what was happening to him. We were trying to negotiate with doctors. But when he went into the coma, it wasn't like the movies where someone lies calmly in a bed. First things first, everything that happens in the real world, you hear, you're aware of, you know what's going on. But it goes through this weird like filter thing in your brain. And by filter, it's going through the drugs. And then it turns into something else once it like actually hits your consciousness. 
you sit at the end reading poetry to them or playing them their favorite song. In fact, you've got nurses doing physio, you've got doctors checking bloods, you've got family coming in, you've got negotiation going on, you've got a body being moved because you're trying to keep a body alive. So again, that gave me a time to sit and observe and think. And I guess Jake and I, he always used to say to me, you're so on every morning because I would wake up with a question, Jake, what do you think about Jake, I was wondering. And suddenly when he wasn't there, I think also that's where I started to write about it because I needed to talk to him. So the book is very much not only me observing and going through this extraordinary experience through the prism of screenwriting, but it's also about anyone who's loved someone and they've been the metronome of their day. It's continuing the conversation, even though he couldn't answer me. So I guess that's also what the book is about. In the early days of the hospital, Jacob kept getting what is presented as good news. Major things ruled out, but still no definitive answer ruled in. And in the meantime, he's in constant pain and deteriorating. Trauma. I kept thinking trauma when I was reading this book. Your trauma. Was it traumatic? Just take us into that experience, the roller coaster of it. How do you even begin to get through it? I think trauma is something that you experience in the immediate and then your survival, your need to survive kicks in. So all those survival techniques. Also, we were very rooted as a family. We had a huge amount of support. Jake and my family, we all know each other. We're very close. We all live together in London. So immediately you have this infrastructure and this network, which I think holds you so invital because you lean into each other. And I think when you're losing the sense of someone, you literally need people around you to go we're all committed to keeping this man alive. So I think that really kicks in. I guess the other thing that happens, you know, it's interesting about trauma. I spoke to a, actually a consultant today, and he said that a lot of the trauma units now, certainly in the UK, have a facility post the period when someone's left trauma, post when they're covering, where they can come back and they come back every three to six months. And they look at trauma on a psychological event because I think you don't realize the long-term impact on trauma until much later. I mean, one of the things that I developed, I think I was pretty fearless at times, but the one thing I I could not cope with and I still have struggled with is uh, machinery, the sound of machinery. Because the other thing is the sound, the score of this movie, the score of this experience was the peeps and the whistles and the bells and the alarms and the the breaths and the ventilators. It's It's this rhythm of music. And actually, if I find myself now walking down a street, if I hear a truck backing and sometimes it makes that kind of receding peak, I can feel myself experience something quite close to PTSD. So I think it surprises you the way you compartmentalize and push that stuff away. Again, you're also dealing with this incredible unit of medics. You know, we've all just gone through a global pandemic. We all understand the deep value and deep respect that we have for our healthcare workers. And certainly in the UK, we have a national health service and The NHS is never better than when you're at death's door. They were amazing. And so again, I leaned into these doctors and consultants and nurses, and in fact, the families of other people. It's a very small unit. Jake was transferred to an intensive care unit, but there's a very, you're connected with each other. So that was an amazing community to be part of. Yeah. Trauma is a weird thing. I mean, you can think that you have it under control or that you've dealt with it, And then decades later, at least my trauma, decades later, the most mundane thing can trigger some sense of emergency or that you're in danger. For me, it came out in such weird ways. And I think a lot of it was triggered by hormones after having my kid and 
I just, I began to feel the deterioration. And I was struck by, as Jacob continued to deteriorate, he begins to disappear and characters seem to emerge. And he was talking in accents. Yeah, so much of it, as bleak and as difficult as it was also incredibly funny at times. I mean, mainly because Jacob has got a great wit and a sense of humor. And I kept on thinking, oh my gosh, if you could see yourself now what you're doing. So one of the things that was really surreal in the, certainly in the first couple of weeks is that Jake, you never knew which character you were going to meet. One day I went in and he was like pure, like 1930s Al Capone, boardwalk empire, swinging punches, like get out of my way. And we were just all kind of reeling. Another day you'd go and he was very catatonic. Another day he'd be like an English gentleman and he'd be almost like at a drinks party, wanting to introduce you to everyone. So you're watching somebody who actually has a great retinue. I'd seen Jake on the West End only a couple of months before, you know, be an actor. I've lived with an actor. But this was a different kind of performance. This was watching, made me realize the brain is a living, breathing, cognitive thing, obviously, but also our personality, our souls, our relationships are held in that kind of extraordinary wiring that goes on. And I think one of the things you just said that's interesting is you're talking about hormones after your kids is that there's a very physiological thing going on when you go through trauma. You've got surges of adrenaline. You've got the come down from that. You've got your body is using everything. Chronic stress, like being overworked or having arguments at home, can affect brain size, its structure, and how it functions right down to the level of your genes. Stress begins with something called the hypothalamus-pituitary-adrenal axis, a series of interactions between endocrine glands in the brain and on the kidney, which controls your body's reaction to stress. When your brain detects a stressful situation, your HPA axis is instantly activated and releases a hormone called cortisol, which primes your body for instant action. One of the things that was very interesting with Jacob, and it's an interesting thing around brain injury, because as a result, Jake developed an acquired brain injury, is that your body floods with calcium to try and strengthen your skull. But what happens is you end up with deposits of calcium all over your body because your body is trying to strengthen the skeleton. It's trying to strengthen the armor around the brain. And it's very specific with brain injuries. And so in many ways, this very crazy, very animated period was when Jake did go into a coma, I think we all needed that respite. We all needed that moment to just go, okay, let's take stock and let's allow the doctors to get him better. That's really honest. And it is, there's so much in this book that is just gut-wrenching honesty that I know a lot of caretakers will understand. And I just want to point out one section you write, I don't want this life that is coming, this frantic, terrifying detour that shakes me to my core. And I think we have an expectation of caretakers to be really courageous and stoic, almost saintly, taking this transition with a necessary grace. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you use the word caretakers, but caretakers are mothers, sisters, friends, husbands, wives. Caretakers are people who've got busy jobs. Caretakers are screenwriters. Caretakers are people. And in many ways, there is always a moment where we care for each other within a relationship. We know there's a, there's an ebb and flow and shift in the way that we look after one another. I think when the balance becomes so extreme, yes, you're right. You do suddenly have to take on a very visceral role. You have to be someone's advocate. That was one of the most powerful things for me was that Jacob couldn't speak for himself. And so I had to speak for him. And 
I certainly think as a family, we were very united in that. But suddenly, you know, we had to find out why was this happening? We had to push with the doctors. We had to communicate. We had to try and understand. And then we had to try and work out what was best for Jacob. We had to make those decisions. No one takes on the role of caretaker willingly. We take it on because we love someone, because we want to care for them, because it's a very enriching experience, actually. But it is also exhausting. And I describe it as a detour. And it is a kind of detour from the kind of self-sufficiency of one's own life, the self-agency of one's own life, because for that period, you put your life to the side and you embrace and hold someone else. And I think if you love anyone deeply, be that for a friend or a parent or a lover or a husband or a child, we're all going to have to do that at some point in their life. And there's something, it's been an enriching experience. Perversely, the whole experience has been enriching, but also we could go on. The experience then had another layer because when Jacob woke up, That was really when I started to realize that our lives were going to be very different when he came out of the coma and when I had to go, okay, how's this now going to work? And have you figured that out? Because I feel like that would be always changing as well. When Jacob first woke up, he developed a really rare delusion called Capgras delusion, which it became apparent to us within the first few weeks that although he was very different, he's very changed, he's very silent, very quickly, he was able to start to communicate. And that was amazing. But he was quiet, he was watchful. And clearly, we weren't quite sure of the level of damage. But within the first couple of weeks, what did become apparent is that he was very welcoming of everybody except me. And I think it took until about Valentine's Day. So Jake woke at late January, and it took about mid February. And it was Valentine's Day. And I had gone and bought him a really cheesy red cellophane blow up balloon heart. And I was going to tie it in his bed and go, isn't that funny? And as soon as I arrived in the balloon, I just saw this look on his face and I tied it on his bed and I went, happy Valentine's Day, honey. And the nurse had very sweetly bought all the families of the patients roses. And she said, Jacob, give your wife the rose. And he just looked at me and said, that's not my wife. One of two things happened. And one part of me went, well, yeah, he's kind of right because we weren't married at that time. So you, then you start bartering. Then you start saying, oh, yeah, no, he meant his partner. He meant his girlfriend. That's, but actually, then within the first two, three days when he was challenged on it, he admitted he didn't know who I was. And when we actually there said, OK, so who am I? He said, well, you're not Abby Morgan, is the way he referred to her. I said, where's Abby Morgan? He said, she's gone. She's got a new life with someone else. Then ensued this very extraordinary period where I had to really go, OK, how does this now work? Because you know, we had share a house, we have two teenage children, we have a house in Italy. Jacob worked within my company. We're so intertwined our lives. How do I manage this? And really, once I'd got over the, I am, no, you're not. Yes, I am. No, I, no, you're not. The kind of bickerer. I just started to fall into a role for him. Capgrass syndrome is also known as Capgrass delusion or imposter syndrome. This is a rare condition where an individual believes that somebody close to them, who could be their spouse, a family member, a close friend or even a pet, has been replaced by a double or imposter. He very quickly decided that I must be working for the state. That was his big thing. So he just thought, you're working for the state. And we just latched onto that and went, "Okay, yeah, I'm working for the state. I've come to help you and your children. And so that's the way we fell into for the first few months. And Capgras is a delusion. It's the belief in imposters. And it often comes out of a traumatic brain injury. And usually with Jake, it's quite unusual for it to come out of an encephalitis, which is an acquired brain injury, which is what normally happens if you've had any kind of brain inflammation or a virus. 
And so it became very quickly, you know, apparent that actually this was something very new for the doctors. So initially they were saying, look, let's work on the theory A, theory B, which is Jacob. Theory A, absolutely not your wife, absolutely not Abby Morgan. But theory B, we can never be 100% sure. So what if 99% she's not Abby? And there's just this 1% she could be. Can you deal with that? And the idea is that you build up every day another percentage. So eventually you tip it, but it just never worked with Jacob. He just would never... He just was very adamant. I can't imagine what you went through at this point, but also you had children and you had to prepare them for the possibility of Jake dying, trying to help them endure at the same time you were trying to endure. Was just watching you endure, giving them, I mean, teenage years are so fucked up anyway. Well, also, they're brilliant. You know, the thing about teenagers is, you know, they are brilliant. They have energy. They have a thirst for life. They have so many hormones raging through them. And I think in many ways, what was interesting about the nature of my relationship with Jake, in many ways, it was quite a 1950s household in reverse. I went out and worked every day. Jake was an actor, but like every actor, he had long periods when he wasn't working. And so he was the main carer. And so I think the reason why my kids survived was that Jake We always say Jake brought the fun. Jake was the scout leader. Jake was the guy who booked the amazing trips. Jake was the guy who said, we're going to go and do this. And so there was an energy and a resilience and a joy for life that Jacob had really encouraged and built in his children. And I think that colliding with that inherent desire to survive, to get through this, is what held my children. They had a lot of friends, a lot of family around them. They're smart kids. They were 14 and 16 when this happened. Undoubtedly, it's been a devastating realignment of their relationship with their father. Undoubtedly, I wouldn't have wished this on anyone, but they were really kind of amazing. One of the things I realized very early on was what didn't work was to lie to them. What did work was to look them in the eye and say, okay, kids, this is what's going to happen. This is where we're at today. I'm going to share this with you. And if they could see that I could hold it, then they could hold it. Giving each other strength I would think. But also, like, if you don't tell children the truth, I feel like their imagination is so much worse than what the truth possibly is. And what they see in the lie is they see that they see your discomfort, your fear. There's a great line. Again, films became my great release, my comfort, my escape. But there's a great line in one of my favorite films, which is Tootsie which is about Dustin Hoffman. It's very un-PC now, but it dresses up as a woman to get a role in a show. And he's already proving to be a terrible boyfriend to this lovely actress. And she said, listen, just give me my pain now. Just give me my pain now. Because if you're going to be terrible, just tell me now. And that line kept on going through my head, which I was like, yeah, we need to deal with this pain now. Because if we just lie, if we cover it, then it's going to really hit us. And I'm not sure if I'm going to have the strength then to hold it. So weirdly, it was like resistance. As strong as the force was that was pushing against us, I just thought we've just got to lean in and push back and go, okay, we're not frightened of it. And that was one of the things that, you know, when someone is going through life and death, and then who's going through a very different psychiatric period and difficult psychiatric period, no one tells you how frightening it is. And one of the things that happens is for me, I couldn't stop shaking, particularly around the time when Jake didn't know who I was. And it took me about three days to go, okay, there isn't a subway underneath. I'm just literally shaking. And really, when I did that, and I sat in, I thought, okay, what are you frightened of here? And I guess I just tried to use myself as the filter, but I also use myself going, if I can deal with it, they'll deal with it, but I got to hold it with them. And look, who knows? They've got a long life ahead of them and I'm sure they will be examining it and dealing with it for the rest of their lives. But so far, touch wood, they've been pretty amazing. 
I don't want to give too much more of your story away because it's such a compelling narrative that I really hope people will read this. Everybody, you have to read this. But there is one part that I want to visit. You're talking about wanting to tell Jacob's story, discussing it with one of his doctors, and his advice is to make sure that you give Jacob agency in it. Talk about how this aligned with your life and Jacob's life at the time. Very interesting. You know, when I first thought about writing it, and I think it started to really grow, particularly when Jacob came home, I had this idea I wanted Jacob to be part of it. And it really came from a conversation I had with Jacob's neuropsychiatrist who said, look, I think if Jake can be part of it, in the same way as we learned, one of the ways we learned how to communicate with Jake and help Jake communicate back, because one of the key things he had lost was agency, was to create a framework of questions and conversation that he could build up with us. So we had flashcards on the table that he could ask questions of us individually. And so when I started to see how brilliant he was at picking this up, I thought, I want to see Jake back on stage. I want him to feel how important he is in the world. And I don't mean just because he's Jake and we love him. I mean, as a human being, because one of the things, it was very challenging. And I had to really face the fact that Jake might come back. He just might not come back with me. And so one of the things that was really important was to try and develop and hold Jacob as a human and get him through and let him have a life beyond us. I had this crazy idea. We were going to do a play and I got a major London theatre interested and we had the main stage and they were like, this is brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Let's start to work with Jake. We can get therapists in, we can bring actors in. And I suddenly realised that this could be part of Jake's recovery and got really excited about that. And then we had a global pandemic and the theatres closed down. And I guess that was when I realized, okay, I need to find another form. And in a way, as I said, I'd always been seeing it as a film. And so at the moment, we can't make plays, we can't make theater, we can't make movies, but actually I can write prose. And so that was what led me to then start to write prose. And then I realized I was writing not only the story of Jacob, but the story of us, because we'd lost each other. He'd lost who I was. And I had a very key moment where I saw Jake catch his reflection in the mirror. And I said, who is that? And he said, I don't know. It was a turning point for me because I realized, oh, it's not that he doesn't know me. It's that he doesn't know himself. And so then I started to write the book. And a lot of the book is directed to him. I use you. I go, you did this today. So it's really a story to him. And it was the publishers who, when they read it, went, it's a love story. And it was only when they said that, I was like, oh, well, I guess it is. I guess it is a love story. I guess, sorry, that's a London Sarah game. I guess it is a love story. And I hadn't set out to do that. But in trying to find who I was in relation to him, who he was, I had to go back through all the conversations we'd ever had. And it's an amazing exercise if you've been with anyone for a long period of time, how you can go back through your life and go, God, I remember that dinner or I remember that evening or there was that holiday. And suddenly I was able to revisit a lot of our past together. And in revisiting our past, I felt like I was able to start to write and understand who we were. And in a way, hold on to my identity when I felt the identity had lost, but also hold on to Jake's identity because he was so different and so transformed. You said he might come back, but he might not come back with me. What do you mean by that? He might be unable to live with someone he doesn't know. He might never know who I was. That was a very, and I realized that actually it was bigger than me. I mean, one of the things I realized, particularly when Jacob started to wake up and I started to see glimpses of him, was how much I liked him. And so it became slightly, I mean, it was totally relevant. There's nothing noble in this. You know, it was a very big part of me wanted 
my children to have their father back and I wanted to get my friend back. But I did have to really wrestle with the reality that I might not get my husband back, my partner back, my best friend back. At best, I might get somebody who can function in the world and can start to rebuild the relationships that he does know. But there was a long time when I didn't think we were going to be able to get through it as a couple. And suddenly it became just as important to keep him going and keep him getting better and helping him recover. That became really as important as anything. So much of what the book contains is your role caring for Jacob in a way that you never imagined. So is there anything that you wish you knew about the role of this kind of caretaker before it became your role? I don't think I realize how lonely it is. Incredibly lonely when you're a caretaker because you're dealing with every kind of grief. You're dealing with the grief of the loss of the life that you had with someone, the grief of that person's life, the grief of the life you had together, the grief of the life you had on your own. And one of the most amazing things is, again, we talk about leaning into family. I lent into friends. I lent into amazing work colleagues. I was very fortunate. I was working on a long-running series, which I write in the UK. We were shooting the second series when this happened. I was writing and shooting the second series and subsequently gone on to write and direct the third. So I lent into the things I loved. I lent into my relationships and I didn't try and hide what was happening at home. I trusted that people had enough humanity to hold me and it and be in the room with me. I had days where I'd be in an editorial meeting and then they'd say, you look exhausted. We're going to go out for an hour. We'll come back, lie down bring you some lunch. I had days where I had to take really terrible calls, very touch and go with Jacob. And everyone was like, you go, it's okay. We'll edit this bit. Come back when you're ready. So it was just this amazing community. I mean, one of the things is, and it sounds like something you'd print on a t-shirt, but one of the things I didn't realize is that there is good in so many surprising places. There was the neighbor I didn't know who suddenly left a pie on my front porch. There was the teacher who I hardly spoke to who rang me. There, was, there were people I didn't know cared, and that was hugely important. Um, but I think as a carry, you can be so isolated and you can be so alone, and it is so physically tiring. I was very fortunate. We employed carers to support and help Jacob. I was able to do that, and that was partly because I was able to go and write and do that Hollywood polish and that Hollywood rewrite for lots of money. But I was very also acutely aware of my privilege, and not everybody has that privilege. And certainly one of the things, I mean, it's something you deal with in the States already, you know, with the need for private care. But we have a very strange system because we rely on the public health service, which is brilliant. But post that recovery period, when actually the long-term rehab, you have to absolutely fund that yourself. It's, it's expensive. And that's one of the things as well that I would say to any carers, you know, you, it's very difficult if you're a carer to also work. It's very difficult if you're a carer to also have a life of your own. And people have to work out the economic equation. It's a real challenge because you're torn between the love you have for the person and the frustration that caregiving brings about. There are few reprieves from an all-consuming labor of love and obligation, and no escape from the mixed emotions that come with it. Is it going to be worth me working if I've got to pay for expensive care? So I was very privileged that we were able to do that, but not everybody has that fortune. Tell me about the title. This is not a pity memoir. It came out of the fact that one of the first conversations Jacob and I ever had together was I met him at a dinner party, and at the time I was adapting or trying to chase the rights of the film about a beautiful book called Before I Say Goodbye, which are the kind of writings, articles, emails of Ruth Picardy in the last few months before she dies of cancer. 
And it sounds very depressing in the same way as this book can sound depressing, but actually it's filled with hope and laughter and humor. And there's something very familiar and universal. And let's be honest, I'd been someone who chased deadlines my entire life. And the one deadline I'd forgotten was the deadline of mortality. But anyway, the night I met Jacob, we got talking and I'd said, oh, I'm trying to chase the rights to this book. And Jacob was sitting opposite me and there was a very drunk woman next to him. And she went, oh my gosh, I hate those pity memoirs. And Jacob went, oh, I've read it. It's brilliant. And so there was this very strange moment where I thought, gosh, because I love those books. I love basically when they're done well, they're people being honest at the most extreme moments in their life. They're there, but by the grace of God moment, they're the portal into an experience. Most of us hope we won't go to, but we all know that none of us are immune from change and catastrophe. So the title really comes from that. It comes from me really coming to realize there are no such things as pity memoirs. They're just words on pages. And if they mean something to someone, then they're worth being said. And I guess as a writer, that thought made me feel okay about writing and sharing and exposing what I think is at times funny and real and difficult and challenging because I basically was saying, I think what I'm saying all the time is I'm talking to Jacob, but I'm also talking to myself. I'm talking to anyone who's been on their own at night and I'm saying, wow, can you, what would you do here? How would you do this? How does, how do I do this? Help. And I guess that came from, because I felt I was very lucky. You know, I feel like We've all gone through this huge global pandemic. That was very humbling, having just gone through what I went through with Jacob and realizing how lucky we were to get to be with him. Suddenly seeing that global pandemic where people couldn't be with their families. I don't know how you get through that. But I think one of the things I took away is that however terrible the world is, I inherently think people are good. And I think inherently life is about chasing joy. And even when terrible things happen, those things are very important. And so with my children, I wanted to take them as far away from death and misery as possible. So there was a lot of laughter. There were parties and dinners and making sure they swam in the sea and making sure that they saw that there was exciting things ahead of them because I needed them to know that there was going to be a future. I needed them to know that there were brighter skies ahead, I guess. And finally, what gives you hope? You know, the extraordinary fight in humans in the spirit of someone to stay alive, that still humbles me. And moments of miraculous recovery when it looks like it may never happen. The body's ability, desire, fight to survive and recover, it gives me huge hope. I guess I try and hope on a more global level that that will also resonate out, that actually, despite the fact that we're in huge political conflict, global climate change, inherently, the world will go on and life does go on. And I guess that gives me a kind of hope. Yeah. Abby Morgan, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Imagine one day you wake up and realize everyone you know has been replaced by an exact duplicate. An evil twin, a robot, or maybe even an alien. Sounds crazy, right? So I was recently reading this book called Phantoms in the Brain, where the author, a very well-known neuroscientist and psychologist, discusses his work with patients developing what is known as the Capra syndrome, among many other disorders. One of his patients, a young man named Arthur, had gotten into, an, into a car accident at the age of 30, which led him to develop this Capra syndrome, one of, probably one of the rarest, most colorful syndromes in neurology. Arthur had been convinced that his parents were imposters who looked exactly like his real parents. Nothing or no one could convince him otherwise. No doctor, 
this guy is not my father. He just looks like him. We so often show the world the light in our lives. We project optimism and happiness, hiding the hard parts, the rough edges, the failings. Maybe it's shame. Maybe it's trying to nudge the projection to the reality. But life exists in the dark, the hard parts, the places we don't want people to see. We all have those dark spaces. Some people like Abby have lived through more of them than their fair share. Caretaking is hard, physically hard, emotionally hard, financially hard. As a caretaker, you're so often put in a position where you have to take care of everybody. Answering questions from well-wishers that you don't really have the capacity to answer. Keeping a brave face for family and friends and hiding the hard parts of yourself from the person for whom you're caring. These are all burdens that the people you know and love, who are caring for someone they love, are carrying. Tread lightly around them. Make sure your interactions are about them, not about you. Don't add weight to what they are already holding. And don't force them to carry the mantle of hero. Mostly, they're just trying to get through the day. In short, let's take care of the caretakers instead of making them take care of us. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not sorry.